Tearing Down Walls, a Sunshine Life podcast with your host, Sylvia Cunningham. Hey everyone, this is Tearing Down Walls on Sunshine Live. I'm Sylvia Cunningham, and the topic of today's show is a big one. Love. Loving what you do and where you are, and of course, finding love, especially during the pandemic. So who better to welcome as our first guest and the DJ we're spotlighting this month than the father of the Love Parade? Thanks for joining me, Dr. Mata. I thank you very much. So love is, of course, central to what you do. You started the mother of all techno parades, the Love Parade, in what was West Berlin in July 1989. So you're all about love, right? More or less, I would say I'm into everything what is like uh, kicking me in a way. Yeah? Like I was thinking about what do I love and what do I like to do and what do I want from life? Yeah? Like uh, all the questions I have. Yeah? Because uh, in the early 80s, I stopped working for a boss. So I get um, independent in a way and do my own business in my way. And from all that, it came one to another to... Uh, find out what I really, 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 really want from this life I experience right now. And so that's what led you to create the Love Parade. After thinking about all of this and what was important to you, you wanted to bring people together in this big party, right? Uh, yes, but this is a very long story, but I can make it short. After after a while experiencing uh, a lot of things in West Berlin, where I grew up, I was born in 1960, and so I have a long history of being uh, captured in that city with a wall around and trying out a lot of things. In a way, um, I was always uh, different to, to everyone. I was a colorful dog uh, in a way, what we, we say, uh, everyone knew me in the area. I, I was growing up and I was always very active in anything I did. So and then came one thing to another. So because we have a basic law in Germany saying everyone has the right to come together or claiming the streets. And uh, that was a solution to uh, set up something like a love parade, something like a music demonstration with no words. Yeah? Uh, we started not protesting against something. We were like going to, to the streets and saying, we want this and this and this and this and that. Yeah? So we went for peace, happiness and pancake, uh, Friede, Freude, Eierkuchen. And our communication is our music. We want to uh, distribute food equally to everyone on this uh, planet and we want to ban all weapons on this planet, even like between people. So that was the main reason. And then we called it a love parade. So more than 30 years later, after the first love parade, you are still very active in the scene here. And recently you've launched a campaign to get Berlin's club scene granted intangible cultural heritage status by UNESCO. What prompted that course of action and what's your pitch? I mean, why should it be recognized that way? Yeah, because uh, what we do is a culture. Because we are not uh, into uh, entertainment things. We're not uh, just listening to music. We are all active because dancing to that, creating a program, building up something that is connected with everything and comes out of something that has not never been before. So we create our spaces, we put art in there, we create the way uh, artists uh, be there, and we all join uh, together every night 
to celebrate this by dancing to it or meeting people and having that to, together with everyone. Yeah, so it's like. Uh, we are all a big community, and we all want this. Yeah, so we have uh, uh, built up a, a long history of that. It's like uh, the ancestors of that culture everywhere on this planet right now. Yeah, from the beginning, everyone is um, invited to participate, and it was from the beginning a transnational culture. So, and this is why we said to give something to the culture, to the electronic music culture, dance culture, that it will be alive also in the future and um, inspire other young people to do the, the same thing and follow this uh, culture. It's important that society is protecting that, that it can be lasting forever or for a long time because everything what we do is culture. Now, because this show is all about love and relationships, when it comes to your love and your long-term relationship with Berlin, is there something big or small that you love about Berlin still um, now in 2022? Berlin changed a lot, very much, because it was like a forgotten city, uh, of course, uh, supported by the Allies and uh, tax money from West Germany and stuff like that. But we had our freedom. Yeah? To me, it's uh, hard to say I'm still in love with that city. Yeah? I'm, I'm more in st uh, still in love with all the artists and uh, the more the creative side. So in terms of the artists here, I mean, does that still mean that there's hope for Berlin? What needs to be done to preserve this culture? What we have right now is um, government support and also support by Europe because they're offering a lot of support which artists um, and institutions and event locations can um, get for uh, having a new start coming up on on cultural level and this is very much uh, going on and uh, we also like to show this year with a new parade we love to do with rave the planet uh, non-profit company how the culture looks like right now we uh, started with rave the planet um, in 2020 in january and our idea was uh, two things to do, like we did with Entangled uh, uh, Culture and UNESCO. And uh, the second thing is like we want to bring back the Love Parade to Berlin. And this is our plan, what we are like to, to do right now. This is our main focus, to bring back the Love Parade spirit back to Berlin. And this is what we want to do in the second uh, weekend in uh, July this year, 2022. Dr. Mata is a Berlin-born and raised DJ and co-founder of the legendary Love Parade, which we will see maybe again here in July. Thanks so much for joining me. I thank you very much. Coming up next, we'll hear from a few Americans in Germany about their love affairs. Tearing Down Walls, our transatlantic show on Sunshine Life. We have a big topic on the show today. We're talking about love. So I thought I could use some backup to help me out um, in the form of my co-producer, Monica Müller-Kroll. Hey, Monica. Hi, Sylvia. Nice to be here. Lovely to have you on. So we just heard from Dr. Mata, who was born and raised in Berlin. And as he described, his love for the city after living here his entire life is a little bit complicated, you could say. But you got another perspective from an expat who came here more recently. 
Yes, I did. I talked with Miranda Siegel. She's from New York and moved to Berlin in 2013. So, you know, long enough to love the city, but also see some flaws. So when I first came here as a student, my German was not super good. And I remember the feeling of having to overcome this feeling of being a baby. I think this is what makes learning a foreign language so hard in general, is that you have to be sort of like a small child. You lose your ability to flirt or to tell jokes or to be interesting. It can be very humiliating, you know? For me, Berlin was a place where I went through this process, where I went through this culture shock and this alienation and this feeling of being small. And because this is sort of a sacred place for me because of that, and I think that for this reason, it's a place where I can be humble and reinvent myself. So going back to school at my age after having had other careers feels natural here in a way that I don't know if it would feel if I were living in New York or in the U.S. So Miranda is now studying film here, and uh, she's well aware that Berlin is a magnet for Americans. But she also learned how to adapt. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that you can say is like someone living in Berlin is, you know, you're a young artist, you moved here in the aughts or you came here in the aughts and you lived in Brooklyn at one point. It's sort of a cliche, you know, and I think there are a lot of people who come here and they sort of have their time here and then they get sick of it and they move on. And I think I've developed my own personal relationship with the city. It helps that I speak German, that I've worked in offices here and that I've established myself here in a way that sort of feels like, for me at least, transcended that initial sort of love affair that you come here and you're, you're sort of blown away by Berlin and how exciting it is and how inexpensive it is. And you start to see also some of the negative aspects of it, just like any other place you could possibly live. So I think it's important just to add that, that like, I don't want to sound too, too starry-eyed, you know? I, I love living here and I also recognize that, you know, that it's a cliche for someone to to come here with my background and to talk about how much they love it. Well, I have to admit, I definitely feel I'm a bit of the cliche that Miranda is describing. I mean, I came here, I fell in love with Berlin, and then I also fell happily in love with someone in Berlin, a German. Um, but actually for you, Monica, it's the other way around. You're a German. Well, I, yeah, my husband is American and we met in Los Angeles a long time ago. But, you know, then I smuggled him to Berlin and he loves it here. And the pandemic, of course, adds this whole other layer to dating and relationships. And um, I caught up with friends of mine, uh, Kevin and Julie. They're both American. They met in Baltimore in 2017. But then there came a job offer for Julie and the job was in Europe, uh, which put a wrench into things. I think the, the main issue was if I was moving to Europe or not. That was the biggest issue. Is Kevin moving to Europe and when? <laughs> so. And figuring out like, okay, is this actually like what we want to do and kind of continue like our relationship further and stuff. Um, I think we were just at the point of our relationship where we met in 2017. I moved in 2019, but I knew I was going to be moving for about a year before then. So long enough to have feelings for each other and be in a serious partnership, but not long enough to say, at least for either of us to say, you know, I know you're the person I want to be with forever. So, and then I moved. So it was kind of navigating what we're doing when COVID hit, which made it harder. So... Well, spoiler, they stayed together and they figured out how to make a long distance relationship work, though sometimes it was a bit stressful. 
I don't know, we were talking about, and for me, this is what we had a little bit of a fight over looking back now because we were talking about, you know, are we getting engaged or, you know, what are we doing? What's going on? And Kevin said, well, I like you and I like hanging out. And I was so mad. I was like, we were talking about getting married. You can't say I like you and I like hanging out. But, like, that's kind of true. I mean, we like each other a lot, and we like hanging out. So I think, you know, during this time when we were apart, it was like we managed to get through because, like, we just enjoyed each other's company. So, like, messaging was easy. Like, video calls were easy. Doing, you know, little virtual dinner dates or things. Like, we just really enjoy the time we did get to spend together. So, I like you and I like hanging out. And now, now we work. <laughs> and now I can laugh about now, that you said that. Now so. we work right next to each other. And now we so. work at a desk, you know, literally next to each other all day long. <laughs> so. Which is the complete opposite. <laughs> So now after that stint of long distance, they live together in Munich. And I asked if they had tips for couples going through a similar situation. And Julie said that her advice is to expect the unexpected. Don't stress out too much about having all the answers and learn to live with the ambiguity. Sounds like good advice, actually. Yeah, I think so, too. So coming up in the show, we'll talk more about love during the pandemic. We'll hear from a researcher and a therapist about what they're seeing. And we'll talk with a professor from the University of New Haven about how the pandemic has changed the phenomenon of office romances. Thank you so much for coming on, Monica. Thanks, Sylvia. Tearing Down Walls is a co-production of Sunshine Life and college radio station WNHU. 88.7 FM out of West Haven. This is Tearing Down Walls. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. This month's show, we're looking at love across cultures, borders, and, of course, during the pandemic. Between travel and contact restrictions these past few years, most of our circles have gotten a whole lot smaller. And most people's work lives, in in some way or another, have been upended, with meetings becoming Zoom calls and our apartments turning into our offices. So when it comes to love, how has the pandemic changed the phenomenon of romance in the workplace? With me now is Amy Nicole Baker. She is a professor and assistant chair of psychology and sociology at the University of New Haven, which is, of course, home to our partner station, WNHU. Welcome. Thank you for making the time. No, thank you. Happy to talk to you. One of the topics you've researched extensively is workplace romance. What sparked your interest in this area to begin with? Um, It's really interesting because there's actually not a lot of work in our research rather in workplace romance. And what you see is it's a really great confluence of different research streams. So for example, you have the work aspect and then you have the psychology aspect of why people are attracted to each other, how people maintain and develop romantic relationships. That's a very private sphere for most of us in our lives, and yet it unfolds in a very public sphere, which is your work life. So I found sort of the how those two intersect with each other really, really interesting. And there wasn't a lot of work being done on it. And workplace romances are really not uncommon. In 2020, right before the pandemic began, a survey in the U.S. by the Society for Human Resource Management found that 27 percent of American workers reported having a workplace romance. And more than half said that they had had a crush on a coworker. The pandemic has, of course, affected this topic. Do you have a sense of what we're seeing now? Is the workplace romance dead? 
Yeah, people have asked me that. Other media outlets have asked me that. And the surprising answer is no, it's not dead. You would think that it would be because people aren't getting out of their apartments and they're working from home and they're working remote. Interestingly enough, though, the elements that drive our attraction to people haven't disappeared with the pandemic. So why do we get attracted to the people we get attracted to? We're often attracted to people that we share experiences with, especially on a daily level. And those experiences now, instead of being face-to-face, have shifted to remote. So Slack channels, texting during meetings, chatting during Zoom meetings. People are still connecting with each other at work, just not face-to-face anymore. And a lot of these communication tools that you see with remote work, like Slack or like having a private email text while you're in a meeting, they're hidden, right? And so it's easier to shade into more personal territory with these online communication tools. So you would think that workplace romance would take a huge dive because people aren't face-to-face over the water cooler. That's not what the preliminary evidence is showing. People are still attracted to each other because now they're texting on the side. Now they have their own Slack channel. And now they're veering into more personal territory because now the guardrails are off. People are texting you at all hours of the day about their work. And so those things that drive attraction have changed, but they haven't gone away. So what are your cardinal rules? When it comes to people who are thinking of starting these types of workplace relationships, what are some recommendations that you have? Yeah, my first recommendation is to sit with yourself and ask yourself, what are my real motives here? Are you really seriously uh, considering this person for a long-term romance, uh, something serious, or at least genuine from an emotional standpoint? Or is it more of a, a fun thing? If you're looking for casual relationships with no commitment and no intellectual or personal bond moving forward, the workplace is not where you should be pursuing those kinds of relationships. There are many avenues for modern person to pursue those kinds of relationships, right? And I'm telling you right now, you don't want to do that in the workplace. Amy Nicole Baker is a professor and assistant chair of psychology and sociology at the University of New Haven. Thanks so much for your time today. You're very welcome. Tearing Down Walls, a Sunshine Life podcast. This month, we're talking about love, especially the challenges of finding and staying in love these past few years. How has the pandemic made the challenging worlds of dating even more challenging? And how has it put relationships to a stress test? Joining me now are two people who have observed this topic up close. Maximiliana Ulich is a postdoctoral researcher at Western University in Ontario. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Great to have you. And Joanna Lumonier is a trilingual therapist based here in Berlin. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Maximiliana, let's start with you. You co-authored a study last year titled Settling Down Without Settling, Perceived Changes in Partner Preferences in Response to COVID-19. What to you was the most intriguing observation in this study? First of all, this uh, study was led by my dear colleague, um, Cassia Alexopoulos, um, and we wanted to know like how couples experience the pandemic, how it is for couples to be stuck together in their apartments for such a long time, and also how singles uh, approach dating and um, with these difficult circumstances. And we looked at change of preferences, like what people report. 
if their preferences change, what they are looking for in a partner. We did ask them, like, compared to before the pandemic, what do you perceive? Like, how much did your preferences change? And I think the most intriguing finding of the study is that in general, people tended to be more selective regarding um, traits, what they were wishing for in their partner. Um, and that was even the case when they were really scared of being single. So <laughs> that was, yeah, unexpected, I guess. And Joanna, what do you think? What have you observed in counseling sessions? The single people I've met are still as selective as ever. They're very fearful, also due to media coverage, to go on dates. All they do is, you know, go on strolls in the park. And I'm seeing on dating profiles something I never thought possible, is that people are giving their vaccination status as part of the information about them, mm. which I've, I was like, what is going on? Why? I mean, surely we are adult enough to, to talk you know, about this when we meet outside in the park. But no, and a lot of people are saying, yeah, if you're an opponent to vaccination or a conspiracy theorist or a lunatic, then swipe left. So there are clearly two camps and there is no discussion desired. It's like, don't even talk to me. Don't put me in your preferences. So online dating has, I guess, increased even even more. And uh, single people are yet very sure of, of who they want to meet and who they don't want to meet. What about the impact the pandemic has had on people's sex lives? I imagine that when this started all in 2020, it was probably a different story than it is now a couple of years in. Maximiliana, can you speak to that? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a big difference for parents and non-parents. <laughs> like for people without kids, that was a really good opportunity, I guess, to reconnect. And for parents, this was less time <laughs> and uh, like maybe no privacy at all because the kids were at home all the time. And um, then there was also this pressure to fulfill maybe your full-time job and homeschool your children. But so we know from research that sexual behavior, I think, didn't change that much so far what we know um, some couples were like trying new things um, sexually which is always which we know from research is a really good booster for keeping the spark alive and for long-term sexual desire so these couples really benefited from it trying new things and um, we know that the sub group existed and there were also like a minority of couples who did take a hit regarding relationships at a section and that also affects sexuality, of course, because that is tied together very closely. But um, the majority of couples like were really stable in their sexual behavior and also in their yeah, relationship satisfaction. And uh, of course, there was this big stressor with the health risk and um, new challenges, but also a lot of stressors like were gone. Like for example, when many couples stayed at home for home office, they ha didn't have to commute anymore, which we also know is a big stressor for most people, like having a long commute to work. And Joanna, what do you think? I don't agree fully because I think that people that led a normal life where they were able to go out and meet friends and engage in social activities, those people, and especially young couples uh, that were all of a sudden confined to staying at home and not able to go out on their own to, to meet friends outdoors, mm -hmm they didn't have the tools to, to deal with what was happening, uh, not, in, not for the relationship and not sexually. So I think a, a very important realm within couples therapy is distance and closeness. And I'm, I'm a big fan of Esther Perel, 
uh, who's a couples therapist, uh, who does uh, very, I mean, great podcasts. And she says that viewing your partner from a distance, away from you in their element, is really what reignites love and desire. They exist away from you, and that suddenly makes them more interesting, more appealing again. If they are always in your living room, in sweatpants, watching TV or on social media on their phone, ultimately, you're going to get estranged from one another. You're going to be friends at best, but you're not going to be lovers that have a desire for one another. That's, that's almost not possible. Maximiliana, I want to ask you about another paper you co-wrote. Um, this one was analyzing cultural diversity within couples, and it challenged the assumption that couples with different sociocultural backgrounds are less stable or less satisfied than culturally homogeneous couples. What did you find? What were your main takeaways? Yeah, like there's a lot, there's a whole body of research that actually um, says that or shows that that intercultural couples are just less happy and less stable. Their divorce rates are higher. And this is explained as a result of different ideologies and values and additional stressors that you tend to have as an intercultural couple, like discrimination if your skin color is different or um, rejection by your social network because your family doesn't approve of your partner. And um, yeah, and we uh, did a meta-analysis, a so-called, which is basically a summary of um, a, a lot of studies where we looked at the effect sizes, like, um, is that really true? And our meta-analysis showed that this was not really the case. We couldn't find a systematic difference between uh, levels of relationship satisfaction between uh, intercultural and intracultural couples. So that was really interesting because this challenged really previous research and um, also this view that like intercultural couples suffer from relationship dysfunction. So that was not really the case of what we found. Now, Joanna, I'm curious to hear your personal experience on this matter, because it's something that you bring into your work as a therapist. You grew up in a couple of different places with a German mom and a French-British dad. How has that informed your understanding of navigating multicultural relationships and the challenges? Well, I would say as a, as a child of a mixed marriage, that it is very difficult for me to find a partner with whom I'm going to truly interact on all levels. I'm going to have to make a choice. It's going to be very tricky for me to find someone who's British, French and German in one person and has lived in all three countries, who knows the culture, the music, the food, uh, who has traveled. It becomes increasingly difficult for someone as, you know, as a child of a mixed marriage to then find <laughs> their new partner. So, yeah, I haven't yet found a multicultural man that uh, I could uh, go out with. So I'm, I always have, you know, just, just German men or just French men, and I'm seeing huge differences in how they approach the relationship and us being together on all sorts of questions, you know, from when, when do we move in together, where do we go on holiday, which music are we listening to, which books are we reading, what conversations are we having, which media are we following or not? And um, I guess I'm three people in one, which is tricky. And in my practice, I have 
only mixed couples, but not because mixed couples have more problems than, you know, non-mixed non couples. I guess they come to me because I'm multilingual and I'm, you know, and I have these different cultures and I'm, so I have this open mind as to all the problems that they could come with from these different cultures, which I guess a, a just German therapist would not. Maximiliana Ulich is a postdoctoral researcher at Western University in Ontario, and Joanna Luminier is a therapist based in Berlin. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in to this edition of Tearing Down Walls. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. This show was produced and edited by me and Monica Müller-Kroll. If there's a topic you want to hear more about or you just want to get in touch, feel free to write us at tdw at sunshine-live.de. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.